Hi, this is Alan Burrow for Faith Working. The sermon you are about to hear is one I preached at the King's Congregation in Meridian, Idaho. For more sermon podcasts or for the Faith Working radio show podcasts, go to faithworking.com. To subscribe to all our Faith Working podcasts, go to the iTunes store and search for Faith Working under podcasts. For information about the King's Congregation, go to the church website at thekingscongregation.com. Turn, if you would, with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 29, I mean Matthew chapter 19. We will be considering verses 27 through 29 this week as well as next week because there is a lot here and I don't want to try to tackle it all in one sermon. So let's read together. Matthew 19, 27 through 29. This is the word of God. Then Peter Peter answered and said to him, See, we have left all and followed you. Therefore, what shall we have? So Jesus said to them, Assuredly, I say to you, that in the regeneration, when the Son of Man sits on the throne of His glory, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my sake shall receive a hundredfold and inherit eternal life. Our garden Father, we pray that by the Spirit you would open this passage to us, that the words of Jesus would be to us strength and encouragement, that they would be to us faith and hope and love. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Now you remember from last week, the disciples have just heard Jesus speaking to the rich young ruler. And they have just heard Jesus call upon this wealthy young man that if he wants to inherit eternal life, if he wants to be perfect and complete, he needs to sell everything, give to the poor, and come and follow Jesus. And of course, the young man balked at that. He had great possessions. He went away sad. He was unwilling to give up these things to follow Christ. And that episode raises the question in the disciples' mind, what about those of us who have left everything and followed you? What shall we receive? And that is the question that Peter here asks on behalf of the disciples. Jesus tells them in a nutshell that giving up everything for his sake is the best investment anyone could ever make. Jesus says losing everything for my sake is the best investment you could ever make. What they will receive will be a hundred times greater. That is, it will be so much greater that it's beyond comparison with all that they have given up. Well, what have they given up? Well, in principle, they have given up everything. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew 16. If anyone, not just the rich young ruler, anyone, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. 
but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. So they're walking away from everything in principle. And in actuality, many of these disciples will have to lose houses and family and lands for the name of Jesus, even as Jesus explicitly warned them back in Matthew chapter 10. Remember what he said when he sent them out to go preach to the different villages. He made it clear that this was kind of a warm-up exercise. It's kind of a training exercise for what they were going to be doing as recorded in the book of Acts after Jesus had ascended into heaven. And he warned them what was going to happen. He says, Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Beware of men. And what he means here is your countrymen. Beware of your countrymen. For they will deliver you up to councils and scourge you in their synagogues. You will be brought before governors and kings for my sake. Brother will deliver up brother to death and a father his child. And children will rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death. And you will be hated for all, by all, for my name's sake. And when they persecute you in this city, he said, flee to another. He says, this is the reception that you're going to be waiting for. It's going to be waiting for you. And a number of the disciples would, in fact, be martyred. Peter, James, Paul, Stephen, to name a few. Peter, in fact, would be crucified as Jesus himself would tell Peter after Jesus was raised from the dead. Peter knew not only that he was going to die, he knew that he was going to be martyred for Jesus' name, and he knew how. He knew he was going to be crucified. Jesus also revealed to Paul that he would be martyred. Paul knew he was going to be martyred. And all of this would occur in the first generation of the church between 30 and 70 A.D. in persecution from the Christ-rejecting Jewish establishment. You read, we read about that starting in Acts chapter 7 and 8 with the martyrdom of Stephen and then the persecution against the Christians in Jerusalem which scattered the Christians all over the place. And added to that persecution would be persecution by Emperor Nero, which would start in the mid-60s A.D., and, that would, and then that would lead up into the Jewish-Roman War. The, the, the uh, revolutionary and radical Jews would revolt from Rome in 66 and 67 A.D., and that would lead to the Jewish-Roman War, which re- would result in the decimation of Judea and the laying waste of Jerusalem in 70 A.D. Now that's what this first generation of disciples to whom Jesus is speaking now, that's what they're looking forward to. One way or another, they were going to lose their lives. Not just figuratively, not just in principle, but literally. They could either lose their lives and have nothing but loss, Or they could lose their lives and have a new life in Christ. And that's why Jesus was saying, literally to them, he who seeks to save his life will lose it. Now Jesus here doesn't specify exactly 
what the life he is giving will be. But he does tell them that it will be a hundredfold better than the life they are losing. You know, this is kind of like the old game show on TV called Let's Make a Deal. I don't know if it's still on TV, but it was on TV years ago. It was on TV for for many, many years. And in that show, uh, they would pick people randomly from the audience. And they'd give them some kind of prize. They might give them $100 or something like that. But then they would give them the opportunity to trade that prize for whatever is behind the curtain or whatever is behind door number one. Of course, they wouldn't know what was back there, and they would have to make the decision. Sometimes what was back there would be great. It might be a new car. It would be fantastic. But sometimes it would be something like a llama. <laughs> you get to take a llama home. So sometimes it was a, a, a bunk or zonk prize, I think they used to call it. So this is kind of like that. This life that Jesus is promising is largely behind the curtain to them. They don't know the details exactly. What is it going to look like? What is it going to hold for me? It's behind the curtain. It's unknown. But Jesus promises that it is a hundred times greater than the life that they know and are giving up. In other words, it is so much greater and so much richer a life that the life they're giving up can't even be compared to it. Now, Paul talks about the same thing, and he adds his amen to what Jesus is saying here. And he does so in the very famous passage in Romans chapter 8, which leads up to that wonderful promise, God works all things together for good to those who love him. The lead up to that promise, Paul says this, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Now, in 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, Paul talks about the sufferings that he has undergone in the name of Jesus. And it was one of the things that Jesus revealed to him when Paul called him. You remember when Paul called Saul... On the road to Damascus, the other Christians didn't even want to come around him because they were so afraid of him because he was persecuting and dragging the Christians off to death. But Jesus sends this fellow to go to Paul, and he says, No, you go to him because he's my chosen vessel, and I'm going to show him how much he has to suffer for me. That's what Jesus says. So Paul knew. Paul was shipwrecked several times. He was scourged and beaten in the synagogue a number of times. He was stoned once. Uh, They thought he was dead. They left him for dead. And on and on and on, the things that Paul went through for Jesus. Add on top of that things that we normally don't think about, like Paul forewent, he forego, forewent, (laughs) a normal family life. No wife. No marriage, no children except those children who were his in the Lord. All of these things he suffered. He knew he was going to die as a martyr. And he said, the sufferings of this present time, they're not even worth being compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. 
Now, given all that these disciples know that they're going to suffer and lose, this new life must be some life indeed. And all the apostles believed so. And they staked their lives on it, many of them knowing they were going to be martyred. They, with great eagerness, gave up what they had and what they knew for a life that was behind the curtain. They did not know the details of what that life would be, but they knew Jesus. They knew the one who was promising that life. And they knew that the life they were going to have was a life they were going to share with Jesus himself. The life that Jesus himself was inheriting was the life that they were going to share. Again, Paul in Romans 8, he says, We are joint heirs with Christ. And this is why the sufferings of the present times are not worthy to be compared with the glory that will be revealed in us. Now, before we leave what Paul says in Romans 8 and go back to our text in Matthew, I want to take note of one other thing that Paul says in making his point. The inheritance, that is the new life that we're receiving in Christ, is bound up, it is joined together with the renewal of the whole world, the renewal of the whole creation. Paul says, you know, right after he says the sufferings of the present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that will be revealed in us, he explains, and this is what he says, For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subject to fertility, because the creation itself also will be delivered from bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. And then he goes on to say, we were saved in this hope, not just a hope that is eternal life for us, but hope that is renewal for the entire creation. Now, why do I point this out? Because Jesus is making the same connection. He is alluding to the same connection in our text. The connection between life for us personally and life for the creation cosmically. And it is a connection that we are not used to making as evangelicals. Now, coming back to our text in Matthew 19, notice two things that Jesus does specify about the new life he promises. Number one, his disciples will share in his reign. Okay? He will be seated on his throne of glory. His disciples will share in his reign. That's in verse 28. He specifies that. The second thing he specifies is that they will inherit eternal life. Verse 29. And all of this goes together. Now what joins these things together? What joins personal eternal life with this concept of Jesus reigning, His disciples reigning with Him? It's this term He refers to in verse 28. In the regeneration. In the regeneration. This is what joins it together. And this is very significant, and let me tell you why. 
As evangelicals, we are very familiar with the concept of regeneration. That is the renewing of an individual from the inside out by the power of the Holy Spirit. What we are not familiar with is that that kind of regeneration of the individual is only half the story. The Greek word that literally means rebirth or born again or regeneration only appears twice in the entire New Testament, and this is one of the times. The word that literally means born again or rebirth or regeneration does not appear in John chapter 3 where Jesus tells Nicodemus, unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. And he says to him another time, you all must be born again. That is a different word. We'll talk about it in just a minute. The word there, uh, the word that Jesus is using here that literally means born again is the Greek word pollen. Genesia, pollen genesia. Pollen means again. And genesia means genesis or birth. So again born or rebirth or regeneration. That's the word that Jesus is using in Matthew 19.28. Regeneration. Okay. The word that Jesus uses with Nicodemus in John chapter 3 is ganao anothen. In other words, ganao genesis or born. Anothen means from above. Now, if you're born from above, of course, that means you have a new birth. You're born again. Yes, it carries that kind of idea, but it literally means born from above. So the word that literally means born again, or regeneration, or rebirth, only appears twice. Once here in Matthew 19.28, and once in Titus 3.5. Titus 3.5 is a famous verse that says this, God saved us, not by works of righteousness we have done, but according to His mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. And this is the concept we're so familiar with as evangelicals, individual rebirth, individuals being born again. The concept we are not familiar with is the one Jesus speaks up in Matthew 19:28, which is cosmic regeneration, regeneration of the entire created order. We're used to thinking of regeneration as something in us. We are not used to thinking of the regeneration of something we are in, us being inside it. But that is what Jesus says. Regeneration is something that is inside us, And it is something that envelops us and the whole creation. And this is the same thing that Paul is talking about in Romans 8. When he talks about our personal adoption as children of God. By which we cry out, Abba, Father. And then immediately talks about the renewal of the whole creation. You have both together. You do not have one without the other. And as evangelicals, we've latched on to one and we get it. We get individual regeneration. But what we've lost is that which goes with it. And that is of the creation, the cosmic 
regeneration of the whole world. These two go together by both by the death of Christ, by His resurrection and His ascension and His pouring out of the Holy Spirit. And that is what eternal life means. Eternal life does not simply mean I will live forever. I will go to heaven when I die. I will have fellowship with God forever. It does mean that. But it also means this entire renewal of the entire created order. It means the life of the new age. And just as Jesus, through his death and resurrection and ascension and pouring out of the Spirit, has brought eternal life, the life of the new age, to us personally, he has also brought, at the same time, the life of the new age to the whole creation. Now that one's hard for us because we look around. And we look around and we see the world and we go, wait a minute. There's still sin. There's still wickedness in high places. There's still death. There's all of this in the world. Yes. And you know what else? There's still sin and death and wickedness in you too. Isn't there? But that doesn't mean that you haven't been born again, does it? We understand that though we are still, we're going to die, we understand we still have eternal life. We understand that though we still struggle with sin, and we still struggle with wickedness in ourselves, and there's a battle there, we know that we have been born again by the Spirit of God. There is a new life within us. There is a fellowship and a union we have with Christ by the Holy Spirit. And there is a union that we have with other Christians by the same Spirit. Just as it is true for us as individuals, so it is the same thing for the creation. Eternal life for us as individuals means eternal life for the creation. If there is no regeneration for the creation then there is no regeneration for us. If there is no new age for the creation, there is no new age in the life of that age that has come for us. And this is what Jesus is alluding to in our text. That through his death and resurrection and ascension to God's right hand, Jesus has inaugurated the age to come. The age to come has come forward and entered into this age. The world to come has come forward and entered into this age. Eternal life has come forward and entered into this life through the resurrection of Jesus. Jesus is ruling. He is bringing about His will. And the disciples are going to share in His reign. Upon the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus Christ, for the first time ever, there was a glorified man sitting on the throne of God in heaven. For the first time ever, a man had all authority in heaven and on earth. For the first time ever, on the day of Pentecost, the Spirit of God was poured out on the earth so that the people of God literally became His living temple, where His Spirit and presence dwelt. 
that started a new age when Jesus ascended to the right hand of God. It started a new era. And that is what Jesus called the regeneration, the renewing of the whole world. You know, we're used to reading in Second Peter where he talks about the new heavens and the new earth. And we tend to think as evangelicals that, there's, that this world is going to be melted down with a fiery heat and all the elements, we hear that word, we immediately think periodic table, all the elements are going to be melted down and there's going to be a completely new world. But there's two kinds of Greek words for the word new. We only have one word new. They have two. One of them means new, completely new, ex nihilo, out of nothing. Something brand new created out of nothing, okay, like, like the earth was originally. The other word new means it's new, but it's reformed, it's transformed, it's metamorphosized out of something that was there before so that there is a continuing existence. And it's the second kind of word new that Peter uses when he talks about the new heavens and the new earth. He's not talking about a meltdown of the space-time universe and a completely new one to come. He's talking about a transformation, a metamorphosis, a regeneration of this world. Just like when you're regenerated, the old person doesn't disappear and an entirely new person come about. You're still the same person and yet you're completely different. Because there's a new principle of life inside you that wasn't there before. And so Paul can say truly, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. But it's the same person. We still recognize you. We still say hi. And yet, if we knew you before, if you lived for very long and got to be very old before you uh, became a Christian, we, we know you and we say it's the same person. And yet we would go, he's not the same person. He used to be. He's different. There's something different. Both of these things are true. Now, in case we have trouble believing this, and as, and as evangelicals, we have a lot of trouble believing this, Jesus gives us another thing to, to make this clear. He says in verse 28 that this new age, this regeneration of the world will begin when the Son of Man sits on the throne of His glory. So we need to ask, when does the Son of Man sit on the throne of His glory? In other words, when does Jesus begin to reign as King? Fortunately, the Bible answers that question for us. The Bible tells us very clearly that the reign of the Lord Jesus Christ, when He sits on the throne of His glory, is not something that's waiting until the future. And that's the most common evangelical belief now. The Bible tells us very clearly that that began when Jesus ascended into heaven. Mark 16, verse 19. This is at the very end of the Gospel of Mark. It says that after the Lord Jesus has already been raised from the dead, He's speaking to His disciples, and it says that after the Lord spoke to them, He was received up into heaven... And sat down at the right hand of God. Very clear. Matthew chapter 7, verse 56. This is Stephen. 
He's about to be killed. He's on trial. He knows he's going to die. He's giving his defense. And now he's laying out and convicting these people. He's telling them that Jesus is the Lord and the Savior. And he looks up as he stands there before them and he says, Look, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Jesus opened Stephen's eyes knowing that he's about to die for Jesus' sake. You know, it says in the, in the Bible, in the Old Testament, that the death of his saints is precious to the Lord. The death of each of his saints is precious to the Lord. And we see an example of this. Here's this man about to die for Jesus' sake. Jesus ministers to him. Jesus shows him how precious his death is to him. He shows Stephen he's not entering into this death alone. Jesus is there. Jesus gives him a vision. Jesus opens up reality. He opens up the dimension of heaven, as it were, so Stephen can see. Stephen doesn't have any doubt. He sees Jesus standing at the right hand of God. In Hebrews chapter 8, verse 1, it says, now here's the main point. We have a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. Not one day. We have one seated there now. This was written 2,000 years ago. And then in chapter 10, verse 12 of Hebrews, he goes on to explain this man, this man Jesus, after he offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God, from that time waiting till his enemies are made his footstool. So the whole process of Jesus coming to reign and, Jesus, and his enemies being made his footstool. And remember, footstool in the Old Testament refers to a place of worship. This is not, making enemies a footstool is not a picture of Jesus stomping on people's faces. It's a picture of Jesus' enemies being made his worshipers. The footstool was the slab of gold. It was the mercy seat that went over the ark. Same thing. It's where the blood went on the day of atonement. That's the footstool. That's where we worship God. Okay? And so this process of Jesus' enemies being made his worshipers is a process that carries out and it happens over time gradually. It doesn't happen like that. It's not a military regime imposed on an unwilling world and it doesn't land like the 82nd Airborne. That's not the way it happens. It happens gradually over time. In Daniel chapter 7, which is the, which is the chapter that Jesus is alluding to every time he calls himself the Son of Man, He's basically saying, remember Daniel 7. Remember what happens in Daniel 7. That's me. Because that's where we get that name, Son of Man. Daniel 7, the vision Daniel receives, he's, he's watching and behold, one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the Ancient of Days. Now notice where he's coming. 
Because we tend to, as evangelicals, every time we hear about Jesus coming or coming with the clouds, we think He's coming to earth. Notice where He's coming in the clouds. To the ancients of days, to heaven. And they brought Him near before Him. And then, what happened? To Him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples and nations and languages should serve Him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and His kingdom one which shall not be destroyed. That tells us what happened upon the ascension of Jesus Christ. We tend to think of the ascensions of Jesus as evangelicals like somebody ascending up a staircase. It simply tells us why we don't see them anymore. And it tells us where they're going to be coming from the next time we see them. And that's the way we think of, oh, Jesus ascended. He's not here. Next time we see him, he'll be coming down. You know, he went up to take a nap. He went up to rest up. You know, because he's got to come back and finish the job. Because the real action is going to start when he comes back, right? So we think of him seated. He's seated in heaven. So we picture him seated like some prize fighter seated in his corner in the ring, resting up between rounds to come back and finish the job. But that's not what the Bible's telling us. He ascended into heaven. He was seated at God's right hand because kings sit when they reign. He's not seated because he's resting. He's seated because he's reigning. He received the kingdom at that time and dominion even as He promised the disciples in the Great Commission, Matthew 28, 18. He's about to ascend. What does He tell them? What's the significance of this? What's the significance of you going away? All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. And this is why I'm telling you, not for some other reason, not because I want to give a new self-help remedy to the world, No, this is why you go and you make disciples of all the nations. Because I am receiving all authority in heaven and on earth. I am not ascending to the Father to give the world a new religious experience. I'm not ascending to the Father to bring some kind of new mystery cult into the world. I'm ascending to the Father to receive all authority in heaven and earth. And this is why I'm telling you to make disciples of all peoples and all nations. And you don't need to ask their permission. Because I have all authority in heaven and earth. Now this is why it is important that we don't despise the day of small beginnings. Do not despise the day of small beginnings. For Jesus told us back in Matthew 13 that the kingdom will start small. It will start small. It will start so insignificant. It will start so apparently powerless. He said it's like a mustard seed. It's like a pinch of leaven. It will present no apparent threat to the powers of this world to the great cultures and societies of man that have been built. But Jesus says, don't you worry. It's going to start like a mustard seed and a pinch of leaven, but it's not going to stay that way. It's not going to stay that way. It's going to grow. It's going to overcome. 
no matter what the obstacles, no matter what the opposition, because Jesus himself, the conquering one, the one with the keys of death and Hades, will himself be in the midst of his people by the Holy Spirit. Now this is why Luke begins Acts by saying to Theophilus, his friend to whom he's writing, and also all the other Gentile converts, he's saying in my gospel, I told you what Jesus began to do. And the implication clearly is, now I'm going to tell you what Jesus continued to do. Jesus who is no longer seen here on earth because he's ascended into heaven. The book of Acts is about what Jesus continued to do. But Jesus now, by the Spirit, is acting in and through His disciples. Disciples just like you and me. And so you start to see the privilege that's involved. Jesus could do everything Himself, but because He's bringing many sons and daughters to glory, sharing His inheritance with us, He brings us into the privilege. He begins to act through his disciples. So when Jesus strikes Paul down on the road to Damascus, he doesn't say, Jesus, he doesn't say, Paul, why are you persecuting my disciples? He says, why are you persecuting me? Why are you persecuting me? So we get to be part of this. You get to be part of the great war. And I'm not talking about World War II. You get to be part of the war to end all wars. You get to be part of the war against evil itself. You get to be part of the war against death itself, against hell itself. And you get to be on the winning side. Because Jesus has already conquered and has himself launched the great and cosmic D-Day. And that is what Jesus is telling his disciples in a nutshell. Is it really more glorious? Is it really more of a privilege and a blessing to sit in the bleachers and watch Jesus do it all himself? Or is it more glorious and more of a blessing for Jesus to say, come with me? Be part of this war with me. Be part of the victory with me. Certainly, that is far more glorious. And that is what Jesus is telling his disciples here. And what is true for them is also true for us. And we will go further into this next week when we go into really reigning with Christ. What does that look like? What does it mean? How is that consistent with martyrdom? And suffering for Jesus' name, how is that in any sense reigning? We're going to talk about all of that next week. But for this week, I want to close with this. This life is the one that Jesus says is a hundred times greater. It is not even worthy to be compared with the life that you have apart from Christ. Now, there are many times, many generations of Christians in certain places that are not called upon to suffer martyrs' deaths. 
They're not called upon to literally lose their homes and be thrown out in the streets or have their families torn away from them for the sake of Jesus. Many generations and many times and places are not called upon to experience that. But it's almost always the case that somewhere in the world, Christians are being called upon to experience that. In America, we have enjoyed one of the longest periods of freedom and blessing. And, you know, sometimes, even today, you know, we get persecuted by being ostracized and called names and that kind of stuff and so forth. But certainly one of the, the great and golden times uh, and golden places to be for being a Christian has been America uh, since its inception. But, you know, today... There are, there are Christians today that are suffering and are dying for Christ in the world. And it's easy for us to forget that as Christians. There are Christians today sitting in prison because of their faith. I mean, we know of a, an American pastor that's uh, spent time here in the Boise area that is in prison right now over in Muslim lands because of the faith. And there are Christians who are dying because of the faith today. And we don't know, I'm not making any predictions because God doesn't give this kind of insight and ability to me. It would be wrong for me to do so. But I am telling you that there are forces at work now in America where what we have enjoyed could change. It could change. And we could begin to literally be asked to suffer this price. For the sake of Christ. But let me tell you one thing that I do know for sure. Even if you live in a time and a place where you're not going to have to lose your family or your house or your job or your life for the name of Christ, Jesus is going to call upon you to give up your life for his sake. He is going to bring you to points in your time where he is going to say to you what is more valuable to you. Your life with you in control, your life the way you want it to be, your life with your values are the life I'm calling you to have. And he's going to call you to make that choice again and again at different times in your life. He's going to hold something before you and he's going to say, okay, what's more valuable to you? Your life as you know it now, whatever you're holding on to, whatever you want to be in charge of, whatever you're making most valuable in your life, or the life that I'm holding forth to you that's behind the curtain. And you're not going to know what that life is. He's not going to give you the details. Because if he showed you what's behind the curtain, then you don't have to trust. And if you don't have to trust, then you don't have to know Christ better. You don't grow in your relationship with him, and you don't grow up as a son or a daughter of God. And so he doesn't show you what that's going to be. You're going to have to walk blind. You're going to have to let go what's in your hand and receive what you can't see. That is a choice every disciple is forced to make by Jesus himself, and not just once. That choice is going to come back again and again and again. I hold forth to you the promise that Jesus made. 
You don't know what's behind the curtain. But Jesus, you do know Jesus. And he says, assuredly, I say to you, it's a hundred times greater. It is so much greater and richer than what you're holding on to. It's not even worth being compared. You know Jesus. Trust in him. It's the best investment you ever made. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.